Please take out your Bibles tonight as we prepare to begin and turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, if you would, please. As I mentioned in a recent sermon, the 2022 Winter Olympics are about to begin in Beijing, China as world-class athletes from all over the world, those who have devoted themselves to being the best in the world and bringing home gold in their respective sports, all gather together to compete and to get their shot at trying to bring home the gold. But as Christians, we are already so blessed because we have already received and possess the gold. We already do in a way that far surpasses and will ultimately outlive all of the medals that have ever been or all of the medals that ever will be won, put together since time began. Did you know that? We have something worth more than all the gold medals that have ever been or ever will be. And that is because we have and know the value of God's word. Psalm 19, beginning at verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. David here says in, in verse 10 that God's precepts, God's word, is to be desired more than gold, yea, than much fine gold. And as I think about these athletes and all they put in to, to win gold medals, and I look at this and say, this is more desirable as far as God is concerned than all of them amassed together. And you know, the Bible shows that many men over the ages will, will sell their own soul, as it were, in pursuit of silver and gold. We know that. And we know that when they sell their soul, as it were, or, or give up their soul's eternal destiny in pursuit of silver and gold in this life, they often leave it behind for others I mean, they can't take it with them when they go, right? Hearses don't pull U-Hauls, doesn't work that way. And so they will accumulate silver and gold and give up everything else only to have to leave it here, to leave it behind. And so that's why the word of God is so much more desirable. It's worth so much more. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Adding in verse 127 of Psalm 119, therefore I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. So again, we see that, and isn't it amazing? You know, what you can buy a Bible for. And if a person wants a Bible and come to church, we give them a Bible, right? And it's worth more because of what's in it 
than a lifetime's pursuit of gold or silver in any form. Look at what King Solomon, the son of David, wrote in Proverbs 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And this isn't the only place he would write something like this. We'd find it in Proverbs 8, 11 through 21 as well, but we'll just look at this one here in Proverbs 3, 13 through 18. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. That is, cannot compare with godly wisdom and understanding. Length of days is in her right hand. In her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all those who retain her. You know, as I, as I look at those benefits that's just outlined right here in Proverbs 3 of, of godly wisdom and how it's worth more than gold and silver and, and all of those sorts of things, as I look at that, I, I think how sad that so many millions miss the gold that's right under their noses in Scripture while in pursuit of gold that will perish. But as I say that, I wonder how many times we miss what's right under our noses as well. I wonder... How many times we miss what's right under our noses, especially when it comes to acquiring or getting the most out of this golden treasure trove that we have right here in front of us. Let me explain that. Acquiring gold requires work. Whether you're going for it in the Olympics or whether you're digging it out of the ground, going for gold, Acquiring gold requires work. And that work requires tools. Now again, whether you're going for it in the Olympics or digging it out of the ground, if you're digging it out of the ground, then acquiring gold requires shovels, pickaxes, heavy equipment, something. You've got, you've got to get it out. It requires tools and equipment. If you're, if you're going for gold in the Olympics, that requires tools as well. That requires perhaps a pair of ice skates, um, certainly a weight room, uh, snowboards, uh, skis. There, there's equipment involved if you're going to acquire gold. If you walk into a Winter Olympic training facility, if you walk into a gym or a training facility, most likely you will eventually come upon a room that has in it a whole bunch of tools the equipment necessary, whether it's weights or practice equipment or what it is where the equipment is stored, walls of it, maybe. Or if you walk into a gym or training facility, a lot of times you'll see all of this training equipment around, tools that are necessary to helping to get the gold. And it's easy to walk into a training facility or gym and, and see all of this equipment around and weightlifting and just say, well, it goes, you know, it, it kind of fits in the environment and just kind of take for granted that's the tools that you need to use. These tools are there for your benefit. It's easy to do that. And I think we have a very similar situation here in the Lord's Church. 
My Wednesday night devotional, I mentioned that this congregation is probably the best outfitted I've ever seen when it comes to tools to utilize to help us grow and, and be strong. And I mentioned the tracks out here on the wall. And again, let me ask, how many times do we walk in, walk right by them, not notice them, not notice what's right there, all of those magnificent tools? Because here in the church building, we have tools too to help us with the gold. And those tools are those tracks on the wall amongst other things. Not only do they, and maybe say, well, I've been through all of those. Well, let me tell you what. You may have been through all of those, but I don't know if those represent half of the tracks that are in the building. <laughs> this drawer out here is full of them. There's a couple of boxes in the office that are full of them. And all of them have a golden worth when it comes to helping us to get the most out of what we've been given here in the gold of God's Word. Recently I was going through some boxes in the office looking for some tracks, and I ran across one, very timely, it's entitled God's Olympics. I thought, well that's pretty timely. Written by Alan Webster, of course. And so tonight I want to just share some information from that tract with you as we consider how much more valuable what each and every one of us has here in the scripture is as compared to even a gold medal that many athletes, that, that only a few of the athletes that go will come home with, but the gold which to them when they go to meet God at the end of their lives won't mean anything. And we have so much more. And so I want to share with you some of the thoughts from that particular tract. How many of you know, for example, just raise your hand, how many of you know where the Olympics got their name? One, two, three. Okay, a few do. Three. All right. Fair enough. I just always called them the Olympics. I didn't stop to think about where the name comes from. It's like, it's like in the church, right? Sometimes when you ask a denominationalist, where did your church come from? It's a, it's a new concept. They, they never thought about the origin of their church or where it came from. And of course, one of the beautiful things here in the Lord's church is that we know that the churches of Christ are in the scripture in Romans 16 and verse 16. We know the church came in Acts chapter 2 and, and we understand the origin of this church that we're a part of. A lot of denominationalists I don't think do because if they did, they wouldn't be denominationalists. Fair enough? So anyway, back to this. I'd always just called them the Olympics. I'd never thought about it, but the Olympic Games date back to Olympia, Greece. That's where they originated in 776 BC, hence the name. They came out of Olympia, therefore they are the Olympics. Although there was a break between the ancient and modern eras, they have generally been held every four years for the past millennium and a half. The Olympics originally consisted of wrestling, boxing, leaping, running, and throwing the discus. Pretty simple. Five things. Brother Webster went on. When Rome conquered Greece in the 100s BC, they retained these competitions. Faithful Jews opposed the Olympics because many events were played in the nude as a form of pagan worship and some prizes had images on them. And of course we know that the Jews were not into images because of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and verse 4. Nonetheless, the games were very popular and the Romans built large arenas to hold thousands of spectators. And, and then he makes this point, I hadn't really thought about this before either. He said, it is interesting to think that the Olympics were going on during the life of Christ. It's like, wow, that's right, we've got something today that was, was going on then. The Christian life 
is sometimes, and I would dare even say oftentimes, compared to athletic events. Paul called the Christian life the good fight. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, he said, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called, and if confessed the good confession, it's a fight. Anybody who doesn't believe Christianity and be living the Christian life is a, is a fight, needs to go back and really look at 1 Timothy 6.12 and, and then get out there and fight. Speaking of the Christian life being called an athletic event or, or being aligned with an athletic event, maybe better said, the Hebrew writer refers to the Christian life as a race in Hebrews 12 and verse 1 where he says, therefore, since we also are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And as I thought about that in Hebrews 12.1, Oftentimes what you'll find in an athlete's interview is how they will look back at people that inspired them, people that encouraged them, people that, as they saw athletes of old uh, performing in the Olympics, and they kind of idolized them, and they kind of wanted to be like them. In, in a similar sort of way, Hebrews 12.1 says, as we're running our race, let us think about Jesus. Let us think about how he ran the race. Let us think about how he made it to heaven, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's how we keep running our endurance race, is by looking back to Jesus and his example. Brother Webster then goes on to make the point the Christian life could be called a relay race. For we must strive together. Philippians 1 and verse 27, which he says literally means athlete together. You ever thought about that? The Christian race is a relay race? We need each other, don't we? We need each other. You can't have a person run a relay race by themselves. Paul says strive together. There's times when we all need to be carried. There's times when we all need to reach out and carry somebody else. It is a relay race. The Christian life is also compared to a wrestling match in Ephesians 6.12 because we are in a deadly struggle with Satan. As you continue down through this particular track, Brother Webster goes on to then break the rest of it down into five God's athlete statements. Five God's athlete statements. The first one is, God's athlete must train rigorously. As you, if you spend any time watching the Olympics, often in the stories they will go back and do a historical account coming up through of how certain athletes have trained and where they've been training and they've been doing this since childhood and, and all of these things. A lot of them have given up a lot of things for that training, for that one shot at the gold. Brother Webster would talk about back around the time of Christ, every athletic competitor was required to train stringently, 
under demanding teachers and diet restrictions for 10 months. As each festival started, he had to prove to the judges that he had fulfilled his training and was not a thief, a slave, or morally corrupt. He was not a thief, a slave, or morally corrupt. Interestingly, when Paul traveled from Athens to Corinth, he would have passed the biennial Isthmian Games Stadium, the stadium where those games were played. A year later, after Paul's having to pass there on the road from Athens to Corinth, in the spring of 51 AD, the games were to be held. So, as he passes the stadium a year before the games are held and athletes had to be in training for a good 10 months, there's at least the possibility that Paul, on his travels through there, saw some athletes training or preparing or getting ready. And Paul used athletes when he wrote to the Corinthians. He used athletes as an illustration to illustrate a Christian's self-discipline. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 24. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 9, 24, that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. I want you to think about that. He said in a race, which they already knew, all the runners run, but only one wins. Run in such a way that you're the person that wins. So as we think about that, consider this. Is not the parallel this? In running the Christian race, with everybody else who's a member of this congregation, isn't Paul saying to each and every member, run as if there's only one person going to win and you want that to be you? Is that what he's saying? In a race, only one wins. Therefore, let me say it again. Therefore, run in such a way that you may be the one that wins the prize. Run in such a way that if there's a prize given, that you'd win it. He says it a little differently in Romans 12 and verse 10. The English Standard Version says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. We should all be competing, as it were, in, a, in, a, in our minds anyway, or the illustration that Paul uses. We should all be competing in this sense, that if there was only one person to win in a given congregation, we would be it. Now, if we were all striving to outdo one another, and be the one, if there was one. Now we know that, that all Christians who finish are gonna, we understand that. But Paul's saying, look, run as if there's only one person gonna win and you wanna be it. In other words, pour everything you got into it. That, that's the point, that's what he's trying to get across to these Corinthians. It's the point he's trying to get across to us. Outdo one another. Live your Christianity in such a way that if there was a winner's prize given to the one who finished the best, it would be you. And if everybody in the congregation was doing that, you suppose maybe a few things would happen on a little bit more intense spiritual level? That's what he says do. You make sure you run as if you're the only one going to win. Verse 25, 
And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Word temperate here, according to Strong's, means to be self-controlled, to exercise self-restraint. Strong's even says, this is a figure drawn from athletes who, in preparing themselves for the games, abstained from unwholesome food, wine, and other sensual indulgences. These athletes were temperate, self-controlled. That's what that means. They, they exercised self-restraint. They didn't get carried away in all these other things. Let me ask you this. It's, you know, we're not all that far into 2020, right? It's the 16th. Don't want to see a show of hands? Please do not raise your hands. Please do not nod. How many of us maybe made that resolution that we were going to take off a few pounds or do this and, and already we've kind of not had the self-control to, to do those things that we said? How many people do you think in the world after 16 days from, from New Year's made these, you know, I'm going to be more self-controlled in this area and I'm going I'm to study more, I'm going to do this more, I'm going to eat less, I'm going to, you know. Let me ask you this, do you think that everybody that said that to themselves 16 days ago is still doing it? That whole self-control thing, right? But these athletes, and what he's talking about for us as Christians, is that we must have this temperance, this self-control. The Apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 9, exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And we'll get to that imperishable crown eventually. Not here, though. Secondly, God's athlete, second God's athlete statement, must give it all he has. Give it all he has. Well, let's face it, you can't run as if you're the only one going to win if you only give it half an effort, right? The Apostle Paul was one of those going for the gold with, with a single-mindedness of focus and purpose like we all should have when we come to Christ. Look at, look at his single-minded focus. Look at his giving it all he has in Philippians chapter 3. Very familiar passage, but we're going to go beyond where we typically go as we read this section. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Look at this giving it all he has, giving up all that's going to hinder him. Just like in Hebrews 12, it talks about the sin that entangles us, all of these things. He said, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul gave it all he had, gave up all he had in order to accomplish it. But then I want you to look at the next three verses. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. 
Now, I want you to think about the Apostle Paul, who's writing this. The Apostle Paul, who has established congregations, who has baptized a few, who has taught God's word in, in many places, who has been harassed by his own people, who has been persecuted by his own people. What does he say? He says, I ain't there yet. I haven't made it yet. See, we can never stop. He goes on from there. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The picture that's painted here, reaching forward to those things that are ahead, you will probably see, if you, again, watch the Olympics, in some of these, these races, that, especially if it's close, that some of these runners, when they cross the finish line, will throw themselves out there, that, that striving ahead to, to go, go over the finish line, to be the first one to cross, to lean over uh, when it's really close. That's the idea here of straining forward, stretching forward, reaching out, making sure I'm giving it all I've got. And, and something Brother Webster brought up about the goal that was interesting, he said, the image here is that of a runner giving one last great effort to break the tape as he crosses the finish line. For Grecian runners, the goal that we see in verse 14 was a goal post at the end of the race course. It was like a finish line marker. And he said a good runner never looked back to see the distance he had covered or the competitors he had passed, but fully concentrated on that goal or that goal post or that finish line. Paul did not see himself as having arrived. Instead, he strained with all his being to reach that goal post, gave it all he had. Paul said, forgetting the things that lie behind, I, I press on, I stretch, I reach for that goal. <clears throat> Why don't we drive down the road looking behind us? Because if we drive down the road like this, we're going to have an accident. If you continually look out at what's behind you, you're not going to see what's in front of you. Not only that, but it's easily seen in any competition, football for example. You've got a runner with a ball. If he's running forward and he's always looking back to see how far back his, his competitors or the defense is, he's not going to run as fast straight ahead because he's not focused on that goal. And so Paul is telling us that same thing when it comes to Christianity. Don't keep looking back. Forgetting the things that lie behind, I press on, I stretch out toward that goal, that post that I've got to reach. The only thing that matters is that goal. Is the only thing that matters getting to heaven? If anything else matters, you ain't been listening for however long you've been here. Nothing else can matter like that. Thirdly, God's athlete must play by the rules. Athletes are always looking for an edge. But how many athletes in recent years, in recent Olympics even, have we heard of who used performance-enhancing drugs, steroids, and had to give back their medals. Some athletes have been banned from the sports they love because of steroids, because they did not play by the rules. And so whole medals have been stripped. 
Did you know that the Apostle Paul makes this point really, really specifically in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 5 when he said, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. That just doesn't get any clearer than that. He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know as well as I do that if somebody is cheating to win, be it doping, steroids, whatever it is, it's hard to play by the rules and still compete with somebody that's cheating for an edge. That's hard. And sometimes as Christians, it's hard playing by the rules when other people aren't. For example, Christ says we're to love our enemies, right? Pray for those who are our enemies. We're also to be forgiving even when people are in our face. You see, playing by the rules is sometimes hard and, and it's difficult when others aren't. But that doesn't stop us from needing to play by the rules. God has given us the rules. We as Christians, there's no, there's no getting around them. There's no skimping on them. There's no loopholing them. There's, these are the rules. And in the Christian walk, we must go by these. Fourthly, God's athlete must avoid distractions. If you're performing and you're in a stadium, no matter what you're doing, with thousands of people, you have to be able to block the people out. Runners must tune out the crowds when they step up to the starting line. You watch a basketball game. You're the visiting team, NBA, and your player has to shoot foul shots. What happens? The people right behind the goal right behind the net are waving balloons, right? They're doing everything they can to distract you. They're screaming. Basketball players who cannot tune out the distractions will miss free throws. Many gymnasts have allowed a camera flash or a fan's yell to distract them at a crucial point only to lose their balance and lose the competition. God's athlete must avoid distractions. Because Christians, as Christians, Paul warned the Galatians in Galatians 5, 7, saying, you ran well. Who hindered you? That is, who distracted you? Who, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Interestingly enough, that word hinder in Galatians 5, 7, who hindered you? That is an Olympic expression that meant coming across the course while a person is running in it in such a manner as to throw him out of the way. Do not let anyone or anything knock you off course as a Christian. The stakes are too high. What did Jesus say? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can't afford to be distracted and have somebody throw you off course. doesn't matter who it is. You can't. Family member, friend, brother or sister in Christ, you can't let them throw you off the course. 
Stakes are too high. You must avoid distractions. And sometimes, brethren, we get distracted. We get distracted not just with worldly things. That is not the only thing that distracts us. Sometimes we get distracted because somebody says something, because somebody does something, because we don't think this was right, or we don't think they said good morning when they should have, or whatever. None of those things are as important as your soul. None of them. And if you allow that to distract you, you're going to miss the goal. And the goal is heaven. Fifthly and finally, here's the part I love. God's athlete will always eventually triumph, period. God's athlete will always eventually triumph as long as he stays in the race. The Christian race is the only one wherein everybody who finishes wins. Christianity is not about who starts. You know that. You've known, every congregation I've been in, known people that have started, they have repented, they have been baptized into Christ, and they were faithful for a while. Jesus talked about them in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. You know as well as I do it's not starting. Listen, if everybody that started this Christian race finished it, this building would be a lot fuller, right? It doesn't work that way. So it's not, it's not the starting that guarantees that you win. It's not he who finishes first. Even though I talked earlier about how we need to act like, like there's only one prize going to be given and we all need to, to be the leader in Christianity. We all need to, to walk this, this Christian walk in such a way that if there was one prize, we'd win it. Everybody giving it all they've got. But the truth of the matter is that all we've got to do is finish faithful. And we triumph. Doesn't matter who gets there first. That's not the point. The point is, is that we finish. Staying in the race, again, is not always easy. There's obstacles, not just Satan. We get down, we get depressed, we get frustrated, we get frustrated with people, we have expectations sometimes that are not met, we have expectations sometimes that are too high, all kinds of those sorts of things. Satan will use everything. It's not just the allure of the world. And so all we've got to do is stay in the race. Can you imagine some of these runners on a straight track? All of a sudden, is they're running full out, or they're skating full out, or they're, they're, they're moving at full speed, speed skating. And all of a sudden, somebody throws you know, a couch onto the course. Well, that's going to mess some people up, right? Satan is trying to throw couches on the course every day of your life. Every day. Only thing he wants you to do is not finish. And, and sometimes we get by the first and the second and the 23rd and the 50th and the 100th, but he keeps throwing. People, we've got to stay in the race. Because all we've got to do is finish. We must avoid distractions and we will eventually triumph. Paul's long-standing dream was to stand on that victory stand before the captain of his team. Hebrews 2 and verse 10, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Paul's dream was to just be there. He admitted it. He said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As, as we consider that passage in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, it's pretty easy to see that the imagery there is, is an athletic one. The word for race in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 is dromos, D-R-O-M-O-S. Refers to a one-lap race around a track approximately 600 yards long, about one-third longer than our 440s. The Greek athletes gave up everything to gain an Olympic crown. You know what their crowns were made of that they won? All that work, months, training. You know what their crowns were made of? Those little, you know, those little crowns? Those crowns were made literally of leaves, foliage, pine, olive, parsley, apple, laurel, celery, and or ivy. That's what their wreaths were made of, according to Brother Webster. You know what happens to leaves over time? <laughs> You know, maybe as a kid in school, you, you pressed, a, pressed a leaf, you know, in wax paper and, and tried to preserve it and all of that. As you think about maybe pine needles being woven in there, and, and you look at, you know, dead pine needles in the fall, you know, look on our lawn, right? We, 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 we might look at that and say, wow, really? Pine, olive, parsley, apple, laurel, celery? Or ivy? And you know what happens when you take any of those leaves and you, you disconnect them from the, the plant that they grow on, you disconnect them from the vine and they die and they get brown and they wither, but yet they spend so much time competing for wreaths made out of that. That's what their crowns are made out of. And, and, and we look at that, and at least me, I look at that and I think, really? I mean, I know there's notoriety, I know there's other things that went with it, but... When I think of all they put themselves through to gain this crown that within a year would be nothing but brown, brittle, dead leaves, I think, really? But then I got to thinking, is that really all that much different than today's gold medals that will have to be left behind anyway? that will have to be left behind that won't amount to anything for those who win them. When they go to meet God, they might as well have gotten one made out of pine or apple in the overall scheme of things to go and meet God. And this may sound anti-athletic and it's not meant to be. It's meant, what I want you to understand is this. We have so much more right here as God's athlete. We have a crown that is imperishable. It's not gonna rot away like those leaves. It's not gonna rot away or have to be left behind like, like that gold is. It's not gonna be left here. The, the crown that we're working for is an imperishable one, as Paul said earlier. It is, worth, it is worth so much more than dead leaves or gold or anything this world has to offer. The Christian's crown will never wilt. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 25, 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. 
Brother Webster concluded by saying this, besides receiving a crown, a victor in the Olympic Games was lauded by triumphant processions or parades, you know, sort of like, you know, an NBA champion team, World Series champion, sometimes they have these parades through town and they wave on the floats and ticker tape parades. Well, a victor in the Olympic Games was celebrated by triumphant processions or parades, also by songs sung to their glory, and with a statue often placed near an adjacent temple. Wouldn't it be great to have a statue of yourself placed somewhere? No. Why not? Have you seen what's happened to some of the statues around the world in the last 10 years? Pull down. They don't, they're a stone image. Now, yeah, it'd be nice to be remembered by people, but when I think of this idea of a statue given to, to a person, and I think of all the statues that have been taken down for different reasons. I'm not saying for good or bad. They've just been pulled out. The point is they don't last. The accolades don't last. And so Brother Webster says, <laughs> is talking about parades and songs and statues. He says this. Take this home with you tonight. He says, Christians will not have to settle for such small rewards. Amen. We will have the applause of heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. The applause of heaven. And he asked this question. Can you imagine God cheering you on as you cross the finish line into heaven? The applause of heaven. God celebrating that another child made it home. You like it when your kids, if those of you that have kids that are older and live far away, fly in, you like it when they come home, right? You're glad that something terrible didn't befall them on the way and they didn't make it. You're glad the plane didn't go down, all that sort of stuff. For Christian, when we get home to the Father, what a celebration, what a, what a victory celebration. You can't afford not to cross the finish line. What a glorious day it will be. We sing about it. We celebrate it. We need to finish the race. But in order for that to happen, first thing that has to do, has to be done, is you have to get your name registered. You have to get your name registered on the roll and begin training. And as we know, that happens when we're baptized into Christ. Pretty much everybody here tonight, pretty much, has already done that. The majority certainly have. But maybe... Maybe you've done that, but you've gotten bogged down. Listen, there's a lot of couches thrown on the course. <laughs> maybe you've gotten bogged down. Maybe you've gotten sidetracked. Or maybe you're not training as diligently as you did in the beginning. That can happen too. You know, you start out and you're on fire and you want to go for the gold and you want to make it to those golden streets and you want to make it to heaven and you, you learn and you get this clean slate and you're baptized into Christ and you come right out of that water. This is going to sound like a contradiction, but it's not meant to be. You come right out of that water on fire, right? And you study, and you learn, and you share, and you grow, and time goes by, and life gets in the way, 
and you get tired and you slow down and there's more couches thrown on the course and all of a sudden you find yourself grinding to a halt. The goalpost is still up there and you aren't getting any closer to it day after day. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're just not training as diligently as you did in the beginning. And if not, I would remind you one last time of those tools, those tracks. There's more out here on the table. Those are excellent tools. But maybe, maybe you just need the renewed energy of prayerful encouragement from some of the other athletes that are running the same race as you are. That, we're all in this race, right? We're all in this race together? And you know what? Sometimes the person that's faltering just needs a word from the, the person that's running beside them or a little behind them. Hey, we need to keep going here. We can, we can do this. Come on, let's keep running. Maybe that's what you need tonight. Maybe you need the prayers or the, the words, the renewed energy of some encouragement from other Christians who are training and running this race with you. Whatever you need tonight, we're here to help you finish the race. Right, church? That's what we're all here for is to help each other finish the race and to make sure we finish ourselves. Don't quit. Just finish. Just finish. Cross that line. If we can help in any way, please come to the front as we stand and sing.